0: Uh, let me pray for us and we'll, we'll get into it. Father, thank you for your grace. Thank you, Lord, that we have your word, that we can go and hear from you on a daily basis. And thank you for uh, the promises of the gospel. Thank you, Lord, that we can uh, know about Christ and know what he provides us through his life, death, burial, and resurrection. Help us today to, um, to recognize that with your spirit, Lord. Give us uh, the ability to, to turn to you in faith and trust in you in all the things that you promised, Lord. You are so good to us Uh, We're grateful, Lord, that you speak to us and we have this chance to come and hear your word. We love you and trust in you in all things, in Christ's name, by the power of the Spirit. Amen. Okay, so today is a unique day here at Maranatha because we are starting a new sermon series on the letter to the Colossian Church, as you can see. Now, the reason why that's so unique for us here at Maranatha today is because we've actually already preached on this book of the Bible. Now, many of you don't know that because we actually began, this is the very first book of the Bible that we began to preach through as a developing church while we were planting Maranatha almost some five years ago. So we're excited to go through it today. And and the reason uh, why we're doing it is because it is very uniquely fits our time and circumstance as a young church, just like it did those five years ago. Therefore, today, like we've done with most of our sermon series, or rather all of our sermon series, I'm going to try and give us an overview of this letter by giving us some some background and some context to to this letter as we look at the major overall theme of this uh, letter from Paul. But I also want to point to us the great truths and promises about Christ that are here for us to learn about this book. So we are going to talk about the context, we're going to talk about the overall theme, but the most important thing are the truths and promises about Christ that are found here in the book of Colossians, right? We should always be looking for what is this communicating to us about our Lord and Savior. So if you would please stand with me in reverence for God's word. We're going to be in Colossians 1, chapter 1. Verse 1 and verse 2, it's going to be up there on the screen as usual, but please, if you would follow along, that would be great. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus, by the will of God, and Timothy, our brother, to the saints and faithful brothers in Christ of Colossae, grace to you and peace from our God and Father. This is the word of the Lord. this be to God. Have a seat. Let me pray for us again. Father... We're thankful for this word. We're thankful for this church. Lord, I'm so amazed even to think back this last week of all that you've done and built here at Maranatha through us. And uh, Lord, you are good and faithful. Lord, you promised to build your church and you are doing that. Thank you, Lord. Let us be a part of more and more. Give us deeper and greater faith as we follow after you. Help us today to worship you and, and hear this truth. In Jesus' name, amen. Okay, so as we get started with this series we see at the very top of the very first thing that Paul does is he identifies himself um, as the apostle. Uh, he, he does this in each of his letters, and he does it in a way to, to let the church know who he is. In fact, in 66 books of the Bible, Paul is one of the most prominent writers. all right. In those 66 books, 39 of them, which we call the Old Testament, and the remaining 27 of them called the New Testament. Now, the reason for that, um, that difference or that uh, major break of the Old Testament and the New Testament is based in Jesus Christ's incarnation. All right, His, uh, his incarnation and his institution of the new covenant through his life, death, burial, and resurrection, which is part of what gets summarized as the gospel. So that's why there's the Old Testament and the New Testament. And out of those 27 books that are in the New Testament, the Apostle Paul actually wrote 13 of those books. Major part of the New Testament, the Apostle Paul wrote 13 of the books, 14 if you consider him the author of uh, Hebrews, which actually is sort of unnamed. So What he's doing here, he does like he does in the rest of his letter. Paul begins, again, by identifying himself. But then he does, or he mentions something interesting. So he begins by identifying himself as an apostle, but then he does something interesting. He first calls himself an apostle of Christ Jesus, and that's important. It is important, but that's not the interesting point. The intriguing part is when he says, by the will of God. He says, I am an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God. You see, at that time and even today, we can understand and even recognize uh, positions of authority. And whether we listen to them or not, that's a uh, different topic altogether in a particular heart issue that we'll be getting to later on in this letter. But when Paul says to the church in Colossae that he is an apostle, Uh, which, by the way, the church in Colossae is also about five years old at this time, just like Maranatha. When he said to that church that he was an apostle, he wasn't simply telling them that he was this teacher of great truth. Rather, what he was declaring was that he possessed a particular authority over that church. So when he writes to these churches and he says, I'm an apostle, he's declaring his authority over that church because he was an ambassador or uh, differently said, a representative of the one who personally commissioned him to, to that office, and that was Jesus Christ, right? Jesus personally went to the Apostle Paul and commissioned him for this work there on the Damascus Road, which then meant that Paul's words and authority weren't simply merely his opinion. All right? Yes, he was commissioned, and yes, he had this authority, but his words and authority didn't come simply and merely from his opinion, but in fact, it was God's authoritative word, which is why he can write the scriptures, All right? which is why he can actually do that. But the question is how? How is he uh, affirmed in this way? How is he qualified? Again, I think this is the interesting part. You see, Paul was one of, uh, one of those Jewish elite, all right? He's called a Hebrew of Hebrews. He was a Pharisee. And what that meant was that he was one of Israel's religious leaders, which placed this great deal of responsibility on his shoulders to know and to lead people in the ways of God's law. Again, that's the Old Testament, As well, we know that Paul actually trained under this really famous Pharisee named Gamaliel who was a respected leader, and apparently he was one of the wisest Pharisees of his time. So you can see with that information that Paul was educated and he was respected. He was educated and respected, but Paul was also born in Tarsus, which is a Roman-occupied city, which made him a Roman citizen as well and exposed him to all sorts of Greek culture. All right, so now with all of that information, with this understanding of who he was as a Jew, as well as who he was as a Roman citizen, with all of that information, that should help us to see why Paul was the right man for the job. We can collect all that information and see that he was the right choice for Jesus. But none of those facts are what actually qualify Paul for his apostleship. None of those facts, none of those truths actually qualify Paul for the ministry that he was called to in the Gentile world. He was only qualified because of the will of God. It's the only thing that actually gave him the ability or the, the qualifications to be and do what he did because it was the will of God. Now, when we talk about the will of God, what we're discussing is the sovereignty of God, His control over all things, you see, God had planned for Paul to be who he was and to become what he did way back in eternity past. This has always been part of God's redemptive plan throughout all of history. This is something that only God could do. Now, truthfully, you and I, you and I do have the ability to look back and affirm God's will. We can see and oftentimes even understand how yesterday connects with today but only God knows how things will work out to accomplish what He's already planned to come uh, together for tomorrow. Does that make sense? You and I can look at yesterday and see how it connects with God's will, but only God is able to know how things are going to be accomplished to fulfill the things that He's already planned to take place, which is why Jesus tells us in Matthew 6, and I'm paraphrasing here, that we don't have to worry about tomorrow because tomorrow will worry about itself. You know, that's what he says in Matthew 6. We all are wrapped up in this. We don't have to worry about tomorrow because it will worry about itself. Instead, this is our call, to be faithful with the things that he has given us today. We are to be faithful in what God has called us to do today. Now, what do you think about that? What do you think about that? Does the truth and promise, as well as the responsibility here, give you confidence to live your life by the will of God? When you hear this truth about God's sovereignty, this this truth, as well as what it holds in promise, as well as the responsibility that gets placed on you as a Christian, does that give you confidence to actually go out and live your life the way God is calling you to live? Now, I'm asking this because every one of us, everyone in here is wrestling with and wants to know what tomorrow is going to bring for them. Is it going to bring safety? Is it going to bring joy or heartache? Maybe better health or more suffering or job security? What about a relationship? Every one of us are wrestling with something along those lines, but the comfort here in all of this The comfort in all of this, and honestly, in whatever happens, comes from knowing that all things will always happen by the will of God and that it will be for our good. Not all things are good, but they're allowed for our good. Does that make sense? Not all things are good, but they are allowed for our good. Let me sort of summarize that idea. We don't choose God knows. And that's challenging, but it's based in God's will. It's based in his sovereignty, which is why this is such a great letter for us as a church. It's why the book of Colossians is such a great letter for us as a young church, and I'm very excited for us to go through this because there can be so many questions that go along with this incredible potential and fantastic possibility that we have here as Christ uses us to build His church here at Maranatha. We all bear the same responsibility in that. And what we're going to learn together from this letter that was honestly written to a church some 2,000 or so years ago is that anything that we face is nothing new. There's nothing new under the sun. Anything that's coming our way is nothing new. Yes, there are challenges in our lives and as well as here with the work that we're doing as a church, but Jesus Christ will always be in charge. Jesus Christ is always in charge. He is always going to be our head as he is always our chief shepherd. And we can rely on him to have his will be done here on earth as it is in heaven. Amen. That's the promise. That's why it should breed confidence in us. We can rely on him because he is who he is and he always will be. And his will will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Now, As we walk our way into this sermon series, as we walk our way into another letter here written in the New Testament, it is important for us to see that all of the Bible can be read and studied for our benefit, but we must also remember that it was written to real people in real churches at a real time in history. And that's how we're able to actually understand this letter even in a a more full way, which is why I want to give us some context into who, when, and why this letter was written, okay? So it's important for us to, to see how it benefits us, but we also need to read it in its context. So this is why we're going to go through it this way. So who were the people in this Colossian church? Who are these people that Paul is writing to? Well, As you're going to see today, and as I've kind of already talked about, and what you're going to see as we go through this letter, they're a lot like us. The Colossian people are a lot like us. This city of Colossae was positioned uh, about 100 miles east of Ephesus, which is a larger city, so they're sort of a suburb in those times, of this major city that was sort of this uh, commercial industrial area. Colossae was also at one time this place of great commerce because like the city of Columbus, it was positioned in a place where the major trade routes of that area sort of connected, right? Just like it is here, which of course then brought to the city, not just goods, but travelers. People would come in from all over, people who ended up making that place their home. So you can imagine when you get this mixture of cultures from all over in in one place, what you also get is a mixture of beliefs, and philosophies and practices. You get all sorts of ideas on how we're meant to live. Therefore, the problem that was going on there was that those worldly teachings were beginning to seep their way into the church. That was what Paul was beginning to address, these false teachers and these false ideas that were beginning to seep their way into the church, which is why Epaphras, who we're gonna learn more about next week, actually went to Paul, who was in prison at that time, and asked him to write this Letter again to address those false teaching and those false worldly ideas that were confusing the truth. Now, when Paul actually wrote this letter, Colossae was sort of on a decline. It wasn't uh, really any longer this developing city that it once was, which is a bit different than Pickerington. Right, we leave here and we'll go by a new field and that has just been turned over for more houses right? We constantly are growing and developing. But the reason why Colossae sort of lost its position in trade at that time was because those major roads that serviced the city, those trade routes that connected in Colossae, they were diverted to another place nearby called Laodicea, right? We know that city. We've heard of that city, and we mainly know it from Revelation 3, so Colossae was the major hub. It was the place where all the trade routes were coming through. It was nearby Ephesus, so people could travel. It was coming north and south and east and west. But then the roads got diverted to Laodicea and Colossae began to sort of diminish. And we know about Laodicea from Romans or from Revelation 3 when Jesus rebukes the church for being apathetic and complacent. They were facing the same issues of people and ideas and philosophies coming into their city, just like Colossae was. This city, uh, Laodicea in Revelation 3, is considered lukewarm by Christ. He calls them lukewarm because in, they, were, they, were, they were lukewarm in their life and practice as Christians, but also in their understanding of the gospel. They weren't doing very much with their lives in the way of furthering the gospel or by being the church, which showed that they were pretty comfortable with who they were and what they had, which led them to believe that God must have blessed them in all that they needed. They didn't need anything else because they had everything that was satisfying to them. What we need to realize and what Christ is getting at in Revelation 3 is it's not the things of the earth that we ultimately. It is not the things of this earth that we should use to evaluate our blessedness, rather it's Christ as our focus. It is Christ that we must depend on, and it's his righteousness and his blessed grace that we hope in, not the things of this world. Right? Not ourselves, not our good works, not our successes, and to be truthful, not even our failures are what determine God's grace for us. It's his will. Not you and me, not our circumstances, not how successful we are or how unsuccessful we are, unsuccessful we are. The major problem in Colossae wasn't that the church didn't exist. There was churches there. Paul's writing to the church. It wasn't that the church didn't exist or even that they were openly denying Christ Rather, the problem was that they were allowing false teachers to add on to the Christian faith and message. They were adding on from those philosophies and ideas and doctrines. Therefore, in that way, they weren't openly denying, but rather they were quietly or silently denying the supremacy of Jesus Christ, along with his sufficiency in his life, death, burial, and resurrection for them. They were taking worldly ideas and adding them onto the truth, so they were denying quietly the supremacy and the sufficiency of Christ. They were mixing the Christian faith again with worldly doctrine and practices. You see, we are always being discipled by something. We are constantly being discipled by something. We are either being discipled in the truth about God and his word or we're being discipled by the world that claims to provide what we need but in actuality can only deliver empty promises. We need to realize that as we go from here, we are always being discipled by something, all right? Therefore, this this letter is absolutely incredible for us. We as a young church, this is an absolutely incredible and wonderful letter for us because throughout the majority of this letter, Paul is exhorting Christ's church to have faithfulness in him from a positive position. Now, what do I mean by that? What I mean is that Paul doesn't spend actually a lot of time rebuking false teachers Rather, what he does is he focuses on what the real truth is about Jesus Christ and his church. He begins to just teach truth. He begins to talk about Jesus and his church. Together, through this letter, we are going to get to see the absolute magnificence of Christ's preeminence. That is why I'm so excited about this letter. This is why we get to do it again. That is what we're going to learn. We are going to learn about the absolute magnificence of Christ's preeminence, and how that should lead us to be his church for his glory and our good. I'm so excited for this letter. I hope you can hear me. Paul writes this letter in a way that he doesn't need to defend against every single false truth that is out there attempting to attack the church. Rather, what is of most value, and the only thing that he really needs to do is preach Christ. Just tell him the truth have you ever heard of the story of the, uh, the money counterfeit that got hired by the FBI and he was brought in to help them discover all the ways that the money was being faked? Well, they, they sat him down at a desk and they said to him, uh, where do you want to begin? And the guy that they just hired said to the lead agent, give me a dollar bill out of your wallet. And of course he said, well, why? He says, well, if I can understand the real thing, then I can spot the fake a mile away. That's the point and the theme of this letter. That is the point and theme of this letter to the Colossian church. We don't need to go out and discover all the ways that the world is going to attempt to seep into our church. Rather, we just need to spend our time learning the truth about Jesus in the way that he has already revealed himself to us through his word. That's why Colossians is so incredible. Focus on Christ. Don't focus on everything else. Focus on Christ. Christ, and then we too will have the ability to properly see and rebuke those lies that are out there, the heresy that is out there, including those tricky false truths that attempt to seep their way into our mind in the way that we live. We have, we will have, we do have the opportunity to do this because we preach Christ and we know Christ. Now this idea that there are false truths out there don't need to concern us. We don't need to to drum up fear within us, but rather we should have confidence because we must remember that the church has been given something by Christ that can never be taken away for us and it is something that the world will never understand. By the will of God, He has decided to give to all of us who are His church, His grace. And that provides us with real and eternal peace. This is something that can never be taken away from you. If you've yielded your life to Christ, His grace can never be removed or taken away from you because it, the world doesn't even understand, but it is what provides us with real and eternal peace. That's not just some small gift. Yes, praise God. That's not just some small gift because we don't even deserve it. We don't deserve his grace because before he even poured out his mercy on us, we were his enemy. Our hearts were actually bent in the direction away from him. But even though we didn't deserve it, God still sent his son to die in our place for the sin that we committed against him. Hear that. We committed a sin against him and he came to die for us anyways. Anyways. Christ has purchased us. He's purchased our freedom with His blood. And now, because of the will of the Father, He has placed us in Christ's hand, and nothing can remove us from His protection or His provision, which includes our salvation. That's the promise of the gospel. And if that's true, which it is, we don't need to turn to anything else in this world for our satisfaction. Jesus is supreme. Jesus is sufficient. He is preeminent. That means that he surpasses all things in who he is, in what he has done, as well as what he is doing. That is who Christ is. That is who we are preaching each and every week. We preach Christ and Christ alone. This letter written by the Apostle Paul to this church some 2,000 years ago is also written to us, the saints and fellow brothers and sisters in Christ. He says, grace to you, and peace from our God and Father. That is who we're going to understand more about as we walk through this letter from Paul to the Colossian church. I'm excited. I hope you are too. If you would, pray with me. Father, we love you and thank you. Grateful, Lord, that we have this letter. We're grateful that we have your word. Lord, continue to lead us and guide us. Lord, give us great faith to walk in this world and complete the mission that you've called us to. Thank you for commissioning us. Thank you for qualifying us in your son, even when we don't deserve it. Help us, Father, to honor you in all the ways. Help us to to show the world our love for you as we walk in obedience to your truth and your word. Let us be the church that you are building, Lord. We trust you and walk after you. In your son's name we pray, in the power of the Holy Spirit, amen.